All right, we're up to the second to last week in the fall series that we've been doing. We call it Rules for Life, The Way We Best Operate, a deconstruction of Jordan Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life. We're actually up to his eighth rule, tell the truth or at least don't lie. Got it? Tell the truth or at least don't lie. In other words, it is a principle on honesty. And for that, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, where we find the following. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is God's word. I guess so. Um, The three talking points we got tonight are we're going to look at the comfort of lies. Why do we do this? Why do we lie? Do you know why you lie? Uh, Secondly, the danger of living lies. Why do we not only tell lies, but we live in denial and embrace Uh, uh, untruths sometimes willfully. Thirdly, an honest fear of God. Why is that incredibly healthy for God's people? A loving God is also to be feared as God. The comfort of lies, the danger of living lies, and an honest fear of God. First of all, the comfort of lies. So many of you who have been here for a while, and uh, maybe if you know me very well, know that for better or for worse, The TV show that shaped the way I think more than any other uh, throughout my life was a little show in the 90s, you may have heard of it, called Seinfeld. And uh, Seinfeld, again, it was so insightful and so like profoundly witty that at times, especially in my adolescent mind, I had trouble discerning what was true from what is stuff I probably shouldn't believe. Uh, And so is the case, as we talk about honesty today, with season five, episode 21, an episode called The Hamptons. And in that particular episode, Jerry and Elaine and the others are invited to stay at a seasonal residence in the Hamptons with their friends who are inviting them to come and get a look at their baby. You've got to come and see our new baby. You've got to see the baby. And Jerry and Elaine go and uh, they see the baby and they walk away and they have this conversation where Jerry says something like, is it just me or was that the least attractive baby that you have ever seen before? And it sounds terrible, and it is kind of terrible, and yet every one of us knows that the way an infant looks, looks almost nothing like what they'll end up looking like as an adult. And so we feel emboldened to comment on a child's appearance. You've been in conversations like this at times before, determining how cute a baby is, right? Anyways, Jerry says, you know, is, was that a cute baby? And he says, you know, the parents, the interesting thing is, 
They're never going to know. No one's ever going to tell them. Elaine says, oh, you have to lie. Jerry says, it's a must-lie situation. And Elaine confirms, yes, it is a must-lie situation. And in my own little, like, adolescent mind at the time, I remember thinking, like, yeah, that's probably true. There are probably some social circumstances where for the sake of somebody else's feelings and for the sake of, like, protecting myself as a likable, you know, winsome, charming person, maybe it is totally appropriate to be dishonest. Maybe dishonesty is the best policy. And, like, corporately as a country, we just sort of accept that. That there are times in life that irrespective of what we feel or what we believe, we're going to lie to people because uh, we want to preserve their feelings or we want to preserve their perception of us. Now, admittedly, in an example like that, when you're commenting on someone else's physical appearance, especially that of a child, you don't ever have to do that. There's almost no situation in which you ever have to comment on anyone's physical appearance. But the underlying reality of like dishonesty And do I have to be dishonest in any way, shape, or form simply to exist in society, simply to protect people, simply to protect myself? That's something that whether you believe it or not, whether you realize it or not, we all just sort of accept. And we put it under the guise of like social etiquette. And so what this episode sort of does is it exposes how calloused people are in preserving, their self-preserving dishonesty. And make no mistake, that's what it is. It's self-preservation. Why do we lie? It's self-preservation and it's manipulation. We do it because we have learned that on the basis of the way that we use our words, we can get the universe to give us what we want. Uh, If you do this on a professional kind of level, sometimes we call it spin, right? You know what spin is? Spin is the stuff of like greedy marketers potentially or sly salespeople or pickup artists in bars or slogan-obsessed politicians or for that matter, psychopaths. They all use at times potentially spin. It's what college students do when they articulate what they think a professor wants to hear in order to get a good grade on an essay instead of articulating what their own unique ideas actually are. It's what little kids learn to do when they realize they've done something wrong, but they don't want mom or dad to be upset with them. It's what all of us do when we think we really want to get our way in the world, and so we might have to lie and please and flatter rather than press toward fruitful truth. Not only do we tell lies, we also live lies. And this is the case, for instance, when an alcoholic refuses input from some, uh, let's say, friend in their life who says, I think you have a problem, and they deny it. Or when an elderly individual has an adult child who says, mom, dad, I love you, but I don't think it's safe for you to be on the road anymore and I want to take your keys away from you, and they refuse to accept it. Or when you have a young man or woman who, even though everybody else can see that the evidence is, even though you're romantically interested in them, he or she is just not that into you. They refuse to believe it. Why? We all do this to some extent. We all live in denial in some respects. And by the way, this can happen on a large scale too. It's not only on an individual basis. Um, Communism. Communism, for instance, is an example of it working in broad scale. Communism torpedoed Stalinist Russia and Maoist China, and it was made possible not only by propagandist lies, but by a nation of people who were willing to believe those lies, to ignore the truth, to look the opposite direction. So, We tell lies, why? To comfort ourselves, to comfort other people, 
to protect our reputation, to protect the way other people feel in a particular moment, but it's only momentary. And if you perpetuate those lies again and again, that's what creates destructive and killing. Uh, the, the lying about it perpetually is what actually creates the long-term damage. Um, the only way to progress is simply to embrace the truth. In fact, Jordan Peterson cites some really interesting research in this chapter where he says that there are genes in your central nervous system that actually turn on whenever you are pressed into new sorts of circumstances, even unfavorable and ones that you don't like. And so if we lie to protect ourselves, if we lie so that we don't have to change anything and get into any new situations, what we're actually denying is the fact that we will and we can be so much more. There are Genes uh, that are what we can be and what we will be that lies nascent and dormant inside of us because we don't push ourselves into places of truth. And therefore, if we would simply move forward, if we would simply face new things, if we would simply face our fears, if we would explore boldly and voluntarily confront the unknown, you can literally build a new and more evolved self that's physically actually more capable of dealing with the reality of the world that surrounds you. Uh, the best psychologists of the 20th century all knew this, by the way. Uh, Freud, if you've studied any Freud, you know that he believes a main cause of mental illness is something called repression. What is repression but is a willful submission of what you otherwise know to be true? Alfred Adler said the exact same thing, uh, believed that believing lies is what bred sickness in his patients. Uh, Carl Jung stated that the immorality of untruth is what plagued his patients. They all knew that individually and culturally, lies poison our souls and poison our culture. And therefore, the only way forward is truth. But the problem is, see, truth is not undangerous. Lies cause problems, but truth can cause problems. Truth is painful. Truth can be very dangerous. Uh, and Peterson actually offers several anecdotes in this chapter about times in his life, crucial, like pivotal situations where he was faced with an opportunity to tell the truth or to lie. And he chose in those moments to tell the truth. And sometimes it hurt somebody else's feeling. And sometimes it put him in situations that might have been physically dangerous for him. But he said, nonetheless, it's the only way to move forward in life because there's an unavoidable truth of life that all things fall apart. And the best way that the truth is the only way to combat that destruction and that degeneration, if we can just open our eyes and acknowledge the reality in front of us and be honest about it, then we can make repairs. But if you just keep your eyes closed and you deny the evidence and you pretend like everything is all right. How many of you are raised in a home where we just pretended like everything was okay behind closed doors and it was just an act and nobody wanted to acknowledge what was going on? If we just move through life like that, we naturally speed the deterioration through blindness, inaction, and deceit. Truth is the only thing that can heal. Truth is the thing that can feed the hungry, it can shelter the homeless. It can bring about the end of cycles of oppression. It can generate safety and stability and offer common ground on which enemies can become partners. Think about it like from a courtroom standpoint. What is the one thing that could get a plaintiff and a defendant on the exact same page? If the truth was exposed, then we'd all have to live accordingly. 
And therefore, truth is the inexhaustible natural resource that staves off the degeneration of the planet. Or as Peterson puts it here, it is deceit that makes people miserable beyond what they can bear. It is deceit, living lies, that fills human souls with resentment and vengefulness. It is deceit that produces the terrible suffering of mankind, the death camps of the Nazis, the torture chambers and genocides of Stalin, and that even greater monster Mao. It was deceit that killed hundreds of millions of people in the 20th century. It was deceit that still threatens us most profoundly, more than anything, still today. Brings us to the second point, the danger of living lies. So, Our text was Ananias and Sapphira. And to be perfectly honest, a lot of people don't like this story for some fairly obvious reasons. What it seems to betray is that the God of the Old Testament, that some people didn't like his uh, seemingly vengeful wrath at times, it's the same God that we're operating with here in the New Testament. And it's troublesome, in, in fact, because we're moving along in the book of Acts and everything's going great. You know, Jesus is raised from the grave and he ascends into heaven. And at Pentecost in Acts 2, the Spirit comes down and is empowering God's people in the church. And in Acts 3 and 4, you have leaders in the church. The disciples like Peter and John are doing Jesus' healing ministry. They're proclaiming the truths of the gospel. Uh, the believers are getting are baptized. There's thousands of baptisms and they're living together in like communal harmony. And then you get to this like screeching, you know, halt in Acts 5, where we hear that Ananias and Sapphira lie about their offering and God strikes him dead. And it's like, what? Why? For that? And it's probably worth, uh, you know, doing a little summary and survey of God throughout the Bible. Like, this is not unprecedented. So, for instance, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, there's a guy named Uzzah who touches the Ark of the Covenant as it's being transported. And because he touches it with unclean hands to try to prevent it from falling, he's struck dead. Like, wait, to get struck dead for that? And then in uh, Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, who are priests, and they offer unauthorized fire on the Lord's altar. And because it's unauthorized fire, the fire leaps out and consumes them. And in number 16, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram uh, bring about this uh, rebellion, attempted rebellion at God's leader, Moses, at the time. And for their insurrection, what God does is he has the earth open up and swallow them and their families whole. And then kind of famous one in Genesis 19, you have Lot's wife who as Sodom is getting destroyed, she turns back and she looks back at her old way of life and simply for glancing back, she gets destroyed too. And then in Joshua 7, the Israelites have defeated the city of Jericho and there's this one guy named Achan who actually goes into the city and he steals some plunder from the city. And for that crime, God had forbidden that they do that, but simply for doing that, he gets taken outside and publicly gets stoned to death. And see, this is the thing. If When I talk to people who are sort of skeptical of the Bible and they say, okay, this is the stuff that I don't get about a supposedly loving God, or maybe even people who call themselves Christians and say like, yeah, I don't worship that God, that wrathful, vengeful God of the Old Testament. And they think, how can this be? How can the punishment possibly fit the crime here? And my pushback on that is usually this. Okay, make sure you know exactly what the crimes are that the people are being punished for. Because a lot of times we just look at them uh, reactively and superficially. And secondly, ask ourselves, are we even qualified to question a holy God's judgment? If God is in fact holy, and I have enough humility to admit that I'm not completely holy in every way, am I qualified to judge a holy God's judgment? And such is the case with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. 
And one of the reasons what I know that uh, a lot of times people have a superficial rendering of it is a lot of times people will say when they read this, and I think probably for the first many years in my life, I looked at this story and thought it's primarily about greed. These people are sinfully greedy. They're materialistic. They just want the money, right? Well, that's not really what it's about. Um, and, you know, I don't know. Ananias and Sapphira, they might have been materialistic and greedy. They very well could have been. But I know that that's not what it's about. For starters, I, I don't know anybody who um, I would consider very greedy who gives away most of their money to the church. Like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Secondly, if you just look at what the text tells us, what did it say right here in verse 2? It said, with his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest of the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The way I'm understanding that is it seems like he's almost giving most of his money and putting it at the apostles' feet, but he's keeping back part of it for himself. And then God makes Peter somehow aware of what this couple has done. And when Peter brings an accusation against Ananias and Sapphira, what does he say? Does he charge them with greed? No. He says, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied. You have not lied just to a human being, but to God. So let me just recap this for you real quick. Ananias and Sapphira, so far as I can tell, they have orthodox beliefs as Christians. They are active members in a church, and they are sacrificing generously to support the ministry of that church. Let's be perfectly clear. They are outpacing many people who consider themselves Christians today in some respects. So what exactly is their sin? It doesn't seem to be that they're greedy. What is it? Well, okay, it seems to be a little bit, to some extent, this premeditated lie. But the bigger issue, the bigger issue is they're pretending to be something that they're not. In fact, they're pretending to be a whole lot better than what they actually are. Why would you think to do such a thing? See, you wouldn't ask that question about withholding money because why would you withhold money? It's obvious. We all want money. We all need money. Uh, money helps everything. Money helps us feel secure. Money helps give us access to nicer things. You wouldn't ask the question, why would you think to do such a thing if the real problem was greed? Because that's not the real problem. Peter's question here is, why would you think to lie about what you gave as an offering? That's a really important question. Why would you ever think to lie about something like that? So, there's a sociologist by the name of Diana Butler Bass, who about a decade ago wrote a book called Christianity After Religion. And in that book, she cites some research that suggests from 1961 to 1996, uh, American worship attendance pretty much uh, fell to half of what it had been. And yet, what was really interesting is the reported American church attendance from Christians stayed exactly the same. The self-reported attendance. In other words, what seems to have happened, the specific numbers were something like 40% of Americans in 1961 said and were actively engaged in some kind of Christian congregation on any given weekend. But by 1996, that number was actually about 20%, even though when you asked the Americans, 40% of them said that they were engaged in their church on that weekend. Why would you ever think to lie about such a thing? Why would you pretend to be something that you're not? Why would you pretend that you did more than you do? 
Interestingly, the follow-up research on that is if you look at young adults from 1997 to 2020, it is the single largest fallout of activity in the organized Christian church in America from that generation. And the number one thing that they list as why I would not be engaged in an organized Christian church is hypocrisy. So when you ask questions like, oh, this young people nowadays, spiritually speaking, young people nowadays, what's wrong with them? I think a lot of them would say, my parents and my grandparents. Why would you ever think to do such a thing? Why would you ever think to lie about that? I don't know. Honestly, I don't even know, and I don't have an opinion as to where the blame in any of that goes. I think there's plenty of blame to go around. Here's my point. Somehow, some way, over the course of that period of time, what the church came to be defined as is basically people who are basically good. People who are trying to create the perception of good people rather than what the church actually is, which is sinful people who are saved only by the grace of God. And what I'm seeing in our text tonight is God wanted to stomp out that type of deception in the Christian church very early on. It's the very first thing that he clamps down on in the early church. In other words, this text proves that God hates hypocrisy in the church even more than atheists and skeptics and whatever hate hypocrisy in the church. Um, by the way, this text also doesn't mean... See, the punishment that exists for Ananias and Sapphira is you shouldn't equate that to condemnation. Um, again, it, the Bible doesn't overtly say what happens to Ananias and Sapphira after their death, but remember, they, are, they present orthodox beliefs. They're active members supporting a gospel ministry. This lie very clearly is dangerous. This lie very clearly is punishable, and God is not okay with it in any shape or form. But it does not necessarily indicate they were unbelievers. It does not necessarily indicate that they went to hell. In fact, I'm more inclined to believe, actually, that God probably took them to heaven. Perhaps what God is doing here is the same thing that he seems to do at the beginning of every new chapter in salvation history, where he makes a very clear, visible, public statement of what he is and what he is not okay with, what's tolerable and what's not tolerable and not acceptable in the Christian church. And I think he's letting everybody know right here, you need to be transparent. You need to be honest. You cannot move forward as a Christian and pretend to be something that you're not, pretend to be better than what you actually are to your Christian brothers and sisters or to the rest of the world. Um, the difference then between the sins of a believer and the sins of a non-believer, so far as I can tell, sometimes it's almost negligible. The difference is not the sins of the believer and the sins of the non-believer because they're both sinful. The difference, the acute difference between a believer and a non-believer is their righteousness. What is it that you think actually makes you acceptable? Acceptable to God? Acceptable to humanity? Acceptable to yourself? See, a non-believer must point to their own performance-based goodness as the source of their value in life. And when their sins get exposed and come to the surface, guess what it is? That's a must-lie situation. But a Christian has many of the same sins, but they own them and they're honest about them because they know that the only thing that will save them is not their comparative goodness, but the gift of Christ Jesus' righteousness. Practically, what this means is a couple different things in your life. 
conscientiously move forward trying to be much more honest than you currently are. What does that mean? Some of us, it's not even, I'm not saying it's conscious and I'm not even saying it's malicious, but some of us move forward in life and we're so dishonest constantly because we tell people what we think they want to hear. We tell people what we think we need to say in order for them to like us and we don't even realize that we're doing it a good chunk of the time. So the muscles of actually concentrating on speaking truth into people's lives, that is hard and we need to work on that to build those kinds of things up. And it doesn't give us a license to say whatever we want, of course. Your honesty might accurately portray the way that you feel about something, but just because you feel a certain way about something doesn't make it objectively true, nor does that make it actually productive in your life. So what you have to do is you have to train yourself to say, okay, I will state the things in life that are quantitatively true and biblically true as though they are truth. And I will state the things in my life that are preferences and my opinions and our thoughts and feelings, and I will state them like I think and I feel. You see how different that is? And yet it's a very important distinction. God's people as people of truth. What is quantitatively true, what is biblically true, we state confidently as truth. But what is our personal take and opinions on things? We state it as our feelings and what we think. Um, By the way, the second part of this is that you also need outlets in your life where you can very transparently speak what you feel and what you're concerned about and your thoughts. And you can share it within a safe environment with a non-judgmental kind of group. Growth groups are really good for this. Trusted Christian confidants are really good for this. Uh, social media is not good for this. Um, does anybody honestly think that this world needs more hot takes? No. This world probably needs just more truth in love. Objective, quantitative, biblical truth in love. Not opinions, not feelings, not hot takes, not condemnation. So the summary would be Christians are not different from the world in that we don't ever sin. We're different in that we're honest about our sinfulness. And we don't live in denial of it because we rest strictly in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not in our own goodness. Brings us to the final point. An honest fear of God. The last verse in this lesson, real interestingly, it says, okay, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. A lot of modern people don't like the, I hear lots of modern people talk about the love of God. I hear very few modern people talk about a healthy fear of God. It's almost because we view them as mutually exclusive, right? Because in a modern world, you define love as acceptance, and therefore any conception of rejection seems like it's, again, mutually exclusive. So we don't talk about a God of fear. And so whenever somebody says, no, no, I believe in a God of love. I don't believe in a God of, of that, that needs to be feared. What I would usually say back in response to that is, well, I actually believe that a God that I fear is a God who loves me even more. That gives me a greater conception of his love. You know why? You can actually explain this. Not too hard. Um, if a murderer has no fear of God, what's to stop them from murdering you or somebody else? If a thief has no fear of God and needs no fear of God, what's to stop them from stealing from you or from somebody else? And if a rapist or an oppressor has no fear of God, what on earth would ever stop them 
from raping or stealing or oppressing or whatever else. And somebody will push back and say, well, but the government, that's what the government's for. And I was like, you say that because you live in a Western democracy. If you lived in communist Russia growing up or communist China growing up, you would not be looking at the government. You would be saying, what's to stop a government that has no fear of God from governing in such a way that it hurts you? See, it is impossible for us to love one another unless we have a fear of God. And it's impossible for other people to love us unless they have some kind of fear of God. And so even if you didn't, I don't know if I explained that very well, but for for you to be loved properly, the fear of God needs to exist. And if you want to talk any further about that, I'm more than happy to. But even in more practical terms, just an illustration. Some of us were blessed with a father or a mother or both that we both feared and loved. And it wasn't at all mutually exclusive. It's possible, it's beautiful, and especially with children, and especially when it comes to God's children, it's the ideal. So let me just close like this, all right? Um, The idea of reconciling a God who is to be feared with a loving God, I don't think that's hard at all. I think that's actually quite logical. That's not confounding. What I do find confounding is that that exact same God loves us enough that he would rather take any lasting punishment away from us than let us experience any kind of permanent harm. Like a loving father, he'll always discipline us, but he will never torture us. And he will never let us face lasting harm. He'll protect us. So what that means is we can be honest. We can accept his discipline We can face reality and face our fears. And that includes the reality that your brother and savior Jesus served a hellish sentence in our place for every last one of our sins so that we don't have to worry about them anymore. And the only thing that he's asked, the only thing he's asking for from you is just to be honest. Be honest with your struggles. Be honest with your weaknesses. Be honest with your fears and your doubts. God's people are all just sinners who are saved by grace. So demonstrate a greater sense of your own weakness in yourself and demonstrate a greater sense of your strength and your love and your blessedness in Christ Jesus. The only thing that is perfect about you right now, the only thing that is perfect about you is your Savior and your future. That's all you need. That is all you need. Accept that Be honest with that. And you know what? Your brain will literally start coding for a new and more contented you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, whether malicious or even well-intentioned, many of us really struggle with telling the truth and living in acceptance of the truth. Remind us right now that the ultimate truth is you love us, forgive us, and seek to bless us. Help us accept that and now be more honest moving forward. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.